Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from a string of leading Australian commissioners, producers and distributors about innovations in short-form content and unscripted formats. And from award-winning director, writer, actor and producer Wayne Blair. All as part of C21's Content Australia On Demand. C21's Content Australia On Demand got underway recently with a series of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews exploring how the nation's television business is evolving in a period of unprecedented change. Innovators in the country's short-form content space discussed how the medium's evolving, pushing creative boundaries and reaching new international audiences with series like TikTok queer drama scattered. They also talked about how short-form can work as a platform for emerging talent, especially those from often underrepresented backgrounds. TikTok Australia and New Zealand Director of Content Partnerships Felicity McVeigh, Unless Pictures Chief Executive Meg O'Connell, SBS Acting Scripted Commissioning Editor Donna Chang and Screen Australia Online Production Senior Investment Manager Lee Nimo spoke with Nico Franks. I think a great place to start would be um, to really define what it is we mean when we say short form. And I thought it'd be interesting, maybe there's differences between the panel in terms of what we define as short form. So um, perhaps let's start with the broadcaster. So Donna, let's start with you. What do you mean when you say short form? Yeah, so for us, short form is really that six by 10 minute format that we've got with digital originals. You know, we were quite active in that space. You know, we've got that partnership with Screen Australia and Lee. We, you know, the, the three things that we, the three kind of arms to our programming, you know, we do the four by one hour mini series that, you know, our drama output and um, the six by 10 and features as well. So for us, short form really is that that 10 minute structure. We don't do half hours, um, but I think, you know, even if we did do half hours, that would still be considered drama for us. Meg, how about you from the production point of view? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's such a great question to start with because um, it means so many things to different people. Uh, obviously, for TikTok, you know, you've got something like Scattered, which is 38 by one minute, um, which is just like a completely different form to a six by 10 um, series. So uh, I often think short form is a pretty weird way of categorizing such diverse content um, because really, you know, you don't call, we don't say all drama or all comedies long form. It's just uh, television. And I I kind of feel the same way with short form that it totally depends and there's so many different genres um, and so many different stories being told in such interesting ways that uh, yeah I, I guess short form just means anything under 22 minutes and Felicity so for you obviously 22 minutes that's not something that we're going to see on TikTok anytime soon and yeah I suppose would you class what TikTok does as ultra short form maybe yes I mean we we do approach it from a slightly different perspective because on TikTok Short form uh, just really means stories told in one minute or less, although we are testing a new feature allowing creators to shoot uh, longer videos of up to three minutes. Um, but for us, yep, short form is just one minute or less shot vertically for a sound on environment, which is very different to a lot of other mobile apps that are out there. I think for us, like one area that we're really exploring that's relatively new for us is narrative or episodic storytelling. This is a really big uh, area and I'm so glad that Meg mentioned Scattered because I've been sick this week with the flu and it's been so wonderful to binge watch the series um, 
because, you know, there's just a lot of great content that's coming onto the platform uh, that is episodic in nature from the same producers, Michelle Melke and Hayley Adams. Uh, they've also produced Love Songs, which is now in its second season as well. So, yes, for us, perhaps we call it super short form, but, you know, we don't really give it a label because we only have the one type of content that is available on TikTok. I'm thrilled to announce as well. I, I just got a notification on TikTok today saying that I'm now eligible to make up to three-minute videos. Um, I've never made a TikTok video in my life, but uh, somehow I've been selected, handpicked. Um, so expect some longer videos from me soon. <laughs> You're one of the chosen ones, Lee. Yeah. You know, to watch something like Scattered where, you know, I just can't even imagine the writers and creators and story producers kind of across 38 episodes um, holding all of that in their minds. But like, there's so much plot, there's so much story. Like in some ways, I often feel like short form um, gets a bad rap because, you know, you're kind of covering the same amount of ground as you would be in a longer form series. Like the tailings on SBS, that could easily be a half hour or hour long show um, in terms of the actual plot that you're covering and the character development that you're covering. And so you've kind of got this, it's this like incredible way of condensing stories, um, which, yeah, I just think is is remarkable. Couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think that short form really is an art form uh, and its very nature just necessitates constant innovation. So developing a story arc over the course of a minute episode where everything's condensed from character development to building suspense and drama that will keep audiences coming back for more, I think is potentially more challenging in a micro format than it is in a longer form series. Um, so it's a really challenging creative discipline and one that I find super exciting. It also just really, I mean, it's not dissimilar to just a classic chapter book or just, you know, any sort of episodic format. Um, and mm. it's, you know, it's obviously just shorter and more digestible, but yet yeah, has some very distinctive challenges that go along with it. Yeah. And I think you can see that the makers are learning from each other and that there's this real kind of like evolution of the form. Um, even when you look at something like Robbie Hood, which was um, a couple of years ago now on SBS compared to the tailings, like you see it, it's really evolved, you know, like there's a, a lot more happening in the tailings I think than in Robbie Hood and um, it's much more advanced and um, like sophisticated storytelling in some ways so you can see that, that they're kind of learning from one another and from the mistakes of the form or the successes of the form in the past and that there's this real sense that it's kind of adapting and, and changing based on audiences and what people expect from short form and yeah it's very exciting space to be in to see it kind of change in that way. Yeah and I think you know with short form like you know referencing like Robbie Hood, which is still kind of, you know, thanks to Meg, like one of my favourite, favourite short film series ever. Um, in Homecoming Queens, like, you know, we are looking to evolve the format, you know, looking at new genres, like, you know, this is kind of our first murder mystery that we've done in that short form contract, um, short form, I'm trying to think of the word, you know, the, the what form format? of it. Format. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're interested to see where else that can go, you know, what other genres are out there, you know, what else can we do? How can we push that short form to, you know, you know, what else can that bring? So, yeah, that's exciting for us. And Lee, does Screen Australia have any strict definitions about short form and, and what it will fund for short form? No, I mean, I guess the strictest would be that my department, online production funding, it needs to be minimum two episodes, so episodic. So we're not here, unfortunately, we're not here for short films. We're here for episodic storytelling. But, I mean, really, we look at things holistically and try and go, does this format match your intended release platform? You know, does it, does it make sense to release something this size? 
exercise on whatever platform you're proposing. If people come to us and say, yeah, this is great. It's going to be half hour episodes. I want to release, you know, 15 of them on Facebook. We'd, we'd kind of run a mile and go, look, that just doesn't make sense in Marriott because people aren't going to Facebook for half an hour, you know, length content. Um, so it, as long as it all kind of makes sense, we're very open. And, and my department's here for experimenting and risk-taking content and, and anything that can really push the boundaries, which is why it's so exciting to be doing stuff like Scattered on TikTok and go, all right, let's see what 38 by 1 looks like. And all of the, um, the feature film and TV departments in Australia kind of raise an eyebrow and I'm like, how does that work? I'm like, well, get TikTok and find out. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned short films because I think people years ago would conflate short form with short films a little bit. But in some ways, it's like uh, short forms are much better stepping stone after short filmmaking than feature filmmaking. I think, um, you know, you often get uh, graduates who out of film school have made a couple of short films and they want to make a feature and you kind of like, well, you can't just make a feature. Like that isn't really, it's not a microcosm for what a feature will demand of creators and producers. Whereas um, short form and like especially shorter short form like on TikTok, um, you know, you could come from a short film background and be well-placed to make something that was, you know, one by 10 or however many minutes it's going to be. So I think it's like providing this really great niche in the market of talent just to kind of upskill people so that they're actually ready to then go and make a feature down the track or direct or write or whatever for um, longer form TV. But yeah, it's, it's especially in Australia, I think at the moment, a really good space for makers to um, use to create and experiment. And we've heard Scattered mentioned a few times now. So tell me a bit about the, the project because obviously so it had funding from Screen Australia. It's distributed on TikTok. I'll jump Thank in. That's right. Thank you for doing the honours, Lee, given that you guys are co-funding it with Film Victoria. Yeah. So this project came through development and production funding and Screen Oz. It's basically the story of four friends. One of them, Will, passes away very suddenly. The other three go to his funeral. It's very stuffy and doesn't really represent the life he lived. Uh, they steal the urn with his ashes in it, go on a bender, wake up the next morning. Um, they've lost the urn with his ashes in it. It's a ticking clock because his parents are coming to scatter the ashes later that day and the three friends have to kind of retrace their steps, find the urn and, I said, it sounds very corny, but find their friendship and find what they loved about Will on that journey. And that's kind of told from, you, you see almost slices of each of the three characters uh, throughout the series. So that's 38 times one minute, did you say? Yeah, or more accurately up to one minute. I think some episodes don't even hit the one minute mark. Actually, I was just listening to um, the draft of a podcast interview with the producers Haley and Michelle this morning that, and they talk about, yeah, the evolution of that story and how they had to map out those beats and really, initially it was 40 episodes and they just kept coming back to 38 was the best way to tell it. But each episode needs to grab the audience from the get-go and then give them a reason to come back and watch the next episode, as well as progressing the story and keeping you hooked on the characters and, and get that character growth. So a lot to pack into each episode that um, I think that's the challenge that you were talking about earlier, Flick, around like that's how difficult it is to, like it's sometimes more difficult to make short form than it is long form because you don't have time for establishing shots. You don't have time to breathe and, and sit in a character's journey and development. You've really got to like dive right in, hook people straight away, beat them about the face with the, the story and and then, you know, hook them for, you know, the next episode in 60 seconds. You've also like have to be so clear on who your audience is. And like I find watching Scattered, you know, is a kind of like <laughs> scattering experience. 
because I'm not super au fait with TikTok and it's sort of like teaching me how to watch it as I'm watching it because it knows that, you know, it's going to have like people who are really used to the app and then maybe people tuning in for the first time. And so it's this like, um, and then you've got the uh, the captions and the titles kind of coming in um, a few seconds into the episode. Like there's so much going on that you're sort of taking in in under a minute. Um, and I think that's like a real credit to the producers and makers that they're like adapting the story so much to the platform. And I think in short form that is required more than anywhere else. Um, you know, same with Snapchat or, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think one thing, well, they do many things well, uh, the producers, but something that they've really uh, learned and adapted over time is how to create for the app. So the sorts of things that you'll see throughout Scattered and the same with Love Songs as well, where Michelle and Haley really cut their teeth is great use of music. So in Love Songs, actually, they were really fortunate when at the time that they released their trailer, uh, I think it was Blinding Lights was trending on TikTok and, and just by actually by way of a fluke, they had incorporated Blinding Lights into uh, one of their episodes so that, that appeared in the trailer and so it just took off and they they got loads of extra eyeballs. Uh, they use things like hashtags really well to tap into different communities that exist on TikTok and we have a huge LGBTQIA plus community and Scattered of course is a queer series so they're using different hashtags to appeal to different community groups again to extend the reach of their content. Uh, and then they're mixing, I think, traditional uh, storytelling methods and um, production craft with some of the in-app tools that are available on TikTok. So things like creative effects, for instance. So it's this wonderful kind of mixing pot of things that they're doing that are appealing to a modern audience that's already on TikTok and, and used to sort of seeing content that's slightly different. I actually just in advance of this session was just chatting with Haley and Michelle um, because I think one of the things that's really beautiful with, with Scattered and that really speaks to TikTok as a platform is, you know, really um, elevating underrepresented or marginalised voices, which is a space where I think SBS and TikTok share a lot of similarities. Um, and I was just saying to the girls, you know, is that an important part of your storytelling? Is that something that you consider up front when coming up with new ideas? And they said, yes, absolutely. Um, it's important in all of their work, you know, whether it's um, queer voices for Scattered or female voices in love songs, you know, that they just really want to tap into you know, different communities and, and help tell their stories. That's one of the best things about online is that, and I think you might have mentioned it before, make around niche content. Like niche doesn't mean that it's a small audience. It just means that it's specific and potentially not being, yeah. that audience isn't being served to on traditional broadcast or commercial television. Maybe more so nowadays with the rise of, you know, streaming platforms, but I really think there's a space for just so many different niches. Like niche could be LGBTQIA plus content. We have a series called Mining Boom that's about, it's now animation on Facebook that's literally about working on a mining site in uh, Western Australia. Maybe it's Northern Territory, actually. And they, it, like, mining miners love it. People who've worked on mining sites, absolutely, like, there's people with tattoos of the characters on their body, and they recommend it to all their, you know, their buddies that they worked with on, on mining sites. So that's a niche content that there's not a lot of mining themed shows on, on commercial television, but there's an audience out there for it, and when they like something, they, they love it. Yeah, 100%. I mean, 
a game that I like to play with people who aren't overly familiar with TikTok is, I mean, there's a general perception that TikTok appeals to teens only and uh, is all lip sync and dance content. And that may have been true uh, at one point in time, but in over the course of the last year, we've seen a real ageing up of the platform and, it, and it's a very inclusive platform for everyone, whether you're a new mum or dad, a granny, um, a tradie, you know, it, it just has such broad appeal. Um, but, you know, when I think of TikTok, I'm thinking of really niche or um, diverse creators. So uh, have you heard of, and Lee, you probably have, but Cooking with the Koori, an Indigenous chef uh, who's a dad of six who recently got a cookbook deal, or Lawrence Bing, who's big on TikTok, uh, who's a female-to-male uh, trans rights activist uh, who we worked with for Mardi Gras. Chebo, who's the 20-year-old Burger King from Blacktown uh, or Punchbowl in Sydney. Uh, it's by Brandon, who's a male makeup artist and advocate for the LGBTQIA plus community, or Astro Kirsten, who's an Indigenous um, female astrophysicist. So, you know, there's just such great diversity. And to your point, Lee, around kind of niche audiences, all of these creators on TikTok who are telling their stories, you know, you could classify them as pretty niche, but they all have huge followings and are reaching a huge audience because when you're looking at it on a global scale, you know, there is a lot of interest, even though the, the topics that they're covering might be quite narrow in focus. How does that compare with um, SBS? Because, you know, I'd love to just sort of tease out this common area that, that we share in terms of our story, approach to storytelling. Yeah, I mean, you know, SBS, we're really proud to be the multicultural, multilingual broadcaster. So we have a real investment in, you know, the teams that we bring on through Digital Originals. And, you know, we're also in, we're in Digital Originals as, you know, as a way to kind of make great content. You know, with Digital Originals, we've got like this commitment to make three series a year, over three years. So we'll end up with nine series, you know, total at the end. But really, like, you know, helping those creators, you know, most of them are who are from underrepresented backgrounds to kind of as a talent escalator to kind of help their careers, you know. So we have like, you know, someone like Corey Chen, who directed Homecoming Queens, our first ever digital original. Um, she's now helming New Gold Mountain for us, which will come out later this year on SBS. So that's like a, you know, we're really proud to be part of that journey. And we're really interested in, you know, we, we don't quite have the same, like, I wish we were making like so many more shows that we like TikTok is, you know, that serves those niche audiences. And we are trying to kind of get those um, voices, you know, to the fore um, as much as we can through the content that we make. Yeah. So, um, you know, definitely we are interested in authentic storytelling, authentic voices and, 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 and raising those up. Yeah. Wayne Blair is an acclaimed film, TV and theatre director, writer, actor and producer. His feature film directorial debut, The Sapphires, had its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in 2012, was the highest grossing Australian film of the year and won 11 Australian Academy Awards. He co-produced and directed the drama series Clever Man for Sundance TV and ABC TV, with other credits including the Australian public broadcaster's hit shows Total Control and Mystery Road. As an actor, Blair's known for titles like Redfern Now, The Broken Shore and Small Claims. He spoke to film and TV critic Margaret Pomeranz about how his career has evolved and what he's got coming up next. Wayne, you've been busy lately. Well, Margaret, yes. Um, yeah, I've, um, 
I'm caught in COVID at the moment in uh, beautiful Sydney, um, but at this point in time, it's been a it's been a productive first half of the year. I just had to think about the, where we were, but the first three the six months of this year, um, I've been in a show, Total Control 2. So um, that's been on my mind and now we're in the edit suite. So yeah, it's been very fortunate and blessed to be involved in this story. So yeah, see how we go. Listen, where did it all begin for you? Oh, for me, it's... Uh, Begin, it began last century, uh, <laughs> of course, I think. In 1988, I was in Rockhampton. I grew up in Rockhampton, Queensland, and um, I was uh, going to study a Bachelor of Business, worked at Sizzler, Video Easy, and the Dreamtime Cultural Centre. Went to Rockhampton State High School. I got a TE score of 785 and was about to do my first year of the Bachelor of Business majored in marketing at Central Queensland University way back in 1989. And I saw my electives and they were all financial and quantitative methods. And I saw two electives called comic drama and Australian drama. And um, I put my hand up, I did those electives and people sort of uh, were pushed me against to doing those electives. And it just all started from there. I just got a sniff of drama in university and in grade 12. And um, and then I sort of went for it. Um, back in the day before internet or Wi-Fi, et cetera, or what you could look up online, I had to send away for programs and books to acting or film schools, uh, Australian Film and Television Radio School, for NIDA and for Queensland University of Technology, which eventually I got into back in 1994. And uh, and then I sort of got a sniff, more, a much more sniff of what drama or telling stories would be like at a, at a, at a university in Queensland and um, I went from there. So, I mean, you had, you've got a lot of strings to your bow, haven't you? I mean, how did you, you know, I mean, actor, director, writer, I mean, how did you know which strand to follow? Um, oh, it was, uh, I think first thing was first. And um, at the acting school, I, I mean, I did a three-year course in acting, but I, I love to read. And, of course, um, in those acting worlds, I, I read a lot but also watched a lot of film that I didn't have access to when I was a bit younger. You know, I grew up on all those 80s films, the Zemeckis or the Spielbergs, um, uh, all, all those types of films, Jean-G. Avildsen, you know, those types of films, Robert Kamei, you know, like it, it just, um, I just grew up in that sort of 80s, that start of 80s when when Beta Cam went to VHS, then, you know, then you were, I'd go to the cinema every weekend in Rockhampton. And, of course, then I worked at Video Easy back in the day when there was a Video Easy. So I did the acting first and then I thought, you know what, I enjoyed acting and I sort of was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time when I graduated and I started to do um, state theatre company shows for Queensland Theatre Company, those education shows when three people would come out to your school. So after I finished my three years, we sort of did, you know, 12 months working <laughs> in um, classrooms or on top of tables in places like Longreach, Winton, uh, you know, um, Eidsvold, Bidjadanga, Cairns, Port Douglas, um, just um, teaching uh, or just performing theatre for um, young people from, you know, grade 8 to grade 12. And I thought I learned a lot about craft and storytelling then, but I learned a lot about writing, I think. And when I was like, we did shows and we were looking at other people's writings, um, it taught me a lot about, you know, what was good or what was bad. And it was taught me, but I just sort of responded to it really well. And then I was in Sydney and then um, Uncle Lester Bostock. Lester Bostock was an Indigenous filmmaker 
um, back in the day, um, and he had a film course. Uh, he he was part of a film course, like at afters, to inspire Indigenous people to go through film school for the first time, or second time, or third time. And he began a um, a a metro screen, the old metro screen in Paddington, uh, just near the Chevelle Cinema. I did a, the Uncle Lester Boss Doc scheme and five short. I did five. They're looking for five short film, uh, indigenous, five new emerging Indigenous filmmakers. I was one of them made a short film and I went from there. So I wrote and I directed my own short film. Actually, Warwick Thornton shot that. Um, that was way back in 1999. It was a five-minute film and made on the smell of an oily rag. And then I started to um, break down that wall of the sense of, oh, shivers, I could actually start writing or directing. That was small and I had no experience in filmmaking except for directing, except for the acting. So and I think I was 29, 30 and I was like, oh, okay, this um, filmmaking thing is for me. And it was a five-minute film. And then the next year, 12 months later, we are invited to do a 10-minute film. And then I think after that I got my first sort of Screen Australia or the old Australian Film Commission short film fund, which had a little bit more money, and Kylie Dufresne was my producer of that. So, yeah, it sort of was, it wasn't, it, I, I made a film every sort of two or three years while I was working in theatre and a little bit of Australian TV when, you know, there were hardly any Indigenous people or people of colour working in Australian TV and film in the sense of across, you know, um, cross-cultural casting in that sense. Um, but, um, yeah, that's how I sort of um, paid the bills back in beautiful Sydney in those early 2000s. Right. Well, well what, was the, what was the breakthrough for you then? Breakthrough? Oh, gee, what would you call a breakthrough? I think, I think you know, if... I used to, uh, when I did this show called The Sunshine Club and Wesley Enoch wrote it, Nick Enright was the dramaturg on it. I thought that was my breakthrough because I was at a mainstream theatre company. It was a Queensland theatre company. And for me growing up with a little bit of sport that I used to play a little bit, rugby league and cricket, you know, performing for the Queensland Theatre Company was like the highlight of my life. It was like playing for Queensland Rugby League or playing for, you know, Australian in a test cricket or something like that. It was the best thing I could have done. And that first play for me in 99 called The Sunshine Club with Wesley and Nick at the helm. And in that show was Kristen Leary, Ursula Jovic, Elaine Crombie, David Page. Um, oh, it was a, just to name a few, Tessa Rose. Um, it was just a really beautiful cast. And we toured Queensland, Cairns, Townsville, Mackay, and then we opened in Brisbane in 99, and then we brought it to the Opera House in the year 2000. The Sunshine Club, my first sort of main stage theatre show, that was a breakthrough for me because I, um, I was on the main stage, so, so to speak. But um, I suppose as a commercial sort of thing, uh, another breakthrough was when I um, did a play called Conversations with the Dead at Belvoir Street Theatre. Um, I acted in this show, a show by Richard Franklin, uh, written by him, um, and it was directed again by Wesley Enoch. And that was on uh, that was at Belvoir Street in 2003. And um, <clears throat> I think that show propelled me in the sense of confidence. Um, and the confidence in um, being in that show and the sense of being a part of a, a wonderful and a key story and a strong story that the whole community should see and being a part of that a really great company. Again, I was sort of blessed in that sense and um, having the confidence to grow and sort of um, to share Richard's story through many other uh, people's stories and just going, okay, I can sort of do this and, and do it okay, but people respond to the stories I've been involved in. I think in those years between 2000 and 2003, the shows that I did, I did the, um, I went over and did Cloud Street, 
And then I worked for Bangara Dance Theatre with Stephen Page doing Skin. And then I worked with Kate Gall at Belvoir Street Theatre again doing um, a smaller show, um, Run Rabbit Run, about the South Sydney Football Club. These little sort of increments of shows, but Conversations with the Dead was the one that sort of, um, it kicked me off a little bit in the sense of who I was because um, I, I was talking about this uh, strong Indigenous-themed story in the sense of an urban one, um, Aboriginal deaths in custody. And it was, it was really a hook for the individual who I was to, to sort of go, okay, it gave me some passion and drive in a sense of something more. And um, after that, um, then I was involved in a show at Belvoir Street called, and Melbourne Theatre Company called The Sapphires, which was written by my friend, uh, good friend, Tony Briggs. And I was involved as an actor in that theatre show. And then that was another sort of, I suppose, stepping stone. Um, and then um, was asked to direct that film, you know, six or seven years later. But that was way back in 2004 that Sapphire's journey began. Well, you know, uh, the Sapphire's was a real leap for you, wasn't it, because it went to Cannes. Uh, You took over the Quasar. It was a very exciting time. I think, um, you know, for that show, um, I remember doing the theatre show and Tony, uh, I was talking to Tony afterwards and we're at the, he was the writer of it and um, we're in Melbourne and he said, oh, Wayne, I think some producers have uh, opened up and reached out to me about doing the show as a film. And I was like, oh, gee, where's Tony? That's really great, you know. That's really good for you. And I had no idea um, what that sort of meant. And um, and then he said, you know, Tony, um, being one of my best friends, said, you know, Wayne, I'd like for you to direct it. And I was like, oh, really? Because I'd made short films at that time and they had travelled a little bit around the world and in Australia and I was just a little bit sort of perplexed that he would ask me. And then I went, you know what? I thought about it. I said, I'll do it. I'll put my hand up. Not knowing what um, that may be or that would create or being a first feature film, I sort of didn't think like that. I suppose I hadn't bit the apple yet knowing what that what that journey may be. I just sort of said, yeah, I'll do it. Of course you would do it, um, you know, because you, you know, one of your good friends asked you, yeah, of course you'd do it. Yeah, let's go do it. You know, it was just as easy as let's go into the football on Saturday and I said, oh, let's do a feature film together. Lo and behold, they got we got the money and we sort of did it together. And, yeah, it did kick off something. Um, sometimes I wish I didn't sort of bite that apple as hard. But, um, you know, when you sort of uh, have a career or you sort of say yes or no to certain things, I wish you were sort of young and, you know, you just uh, were fleetingly, you know, just doing theatre shows at Belvoir Street. Um, sometimes you have to think about it and, you know, really choose what you need to do next. But anyway, that's another story. Listen, what do you mean by maybe you shouldn't have bit that, the apple so hard? I oh, know. I think, you know, I think um, it's it's when, you know, those those times, I remember back in those days before, say, a film like um, you, you do your first sort of feature film like The Sapphires, you sort of, um, you just, you know, you're not innocent or anything. It's just that you're you're not thinking of the bigger picture or your career as such or where you need to go or what you need to do. You're just sort of thinking of the immediate moment of the first page of the script you go to the second page of the script, you go to the third page of the script, you're going beat by beat, scene by scene. When you're sort of made to think about 15 years away or 20 years away, three years away, or if you have to project or you have to be an adult um, to a certain degree or an adult filmmaker, I don't know. It, um, it, it's, I think I'm speaking in circles a little bit, but I suppose it's not about being confused. I think when you're not younger, but when you're um 
when you have no pressure built around you, you you know when you know as an artist in your birth and your death, it's um ego doesn't come in, you know, and you have to think about things, and you're more, much more freer because you don't care really, but you do care in the same breath. But you're just trusting the moment and trusting the people around you, and you're living and breathing in the immediate moment of the next day. I'm not too sure if how the how how that is. I don't know. It's it's um. I suppose it's no, it's not growing up. I don't know, Margaret. You've got me in a you've got me in a corner. I've just um, I've never thought about it until that moment. I think, but yeah, did I make any sense of that? I think you're making a lot of sense because there is that. Okay, you've got no no fear. You don't feel you've got anything to lose, and then you've got this amazing success, and it's huge being selected for for Cannes. And so all of a sudden, this little adventure that you had turns out to be a great one. And then the expectations are uh, put on you. Yeah, I, I felt, um, you know, when we got into Cannes, I, I realised it was a, you know, I wasn't um, all naive. I realised it was a film festival in um, in France and I realised uh, it was of high value, I suppose, but as Berlin and Sundance and Toronto, they all were, um, and uh, Vienna, Venice, Venice Film Festival, sorry. Um, yeah, so I knew that it was important because I knew because, um, of course, my friend's film, Samson and Delilah, and a few other films, a um, few other Indigenous filmmakers had got their Tracy Moffat went across there and Richard Franklin had his short film there and Warwick Thornton had his. So I just knew that was it was a special film festival. I didn't really realise quite special how, how special it was until after the fact, until we came back home and realised how important it was to everyone else. Um, I understand that I'm in a business and how important it was for the for the business of the film. I didn't realise that, in all honesty, but um, I certainly caught up to that world and maybe that's what I was talking about of biting the apple and then I realised that the business of, of the world of cinema and these stories and um, what they can do for a company or a brand um, and things like that, which that, that didn't come into my world I, and, I, and I'm, you know, that didn't come into my world. It's definitely in my world now. But um, and so learning about all about that, and then going back to what I wanted to do and where I'm at, I felt like I've come full circle over these last few years in the sense of being in this country and um and um saying yes and slowing down and sort of trying to um not not um trying to sort of go back to that place where it was it was not easier. It wasn't easier. It's it never was easy, but it was fun. And I think that's the key. And it was it was it was organized fun. And when you work with your friends and your family, it, it's so much easier. Not easier. It it, it is more fun. But it, the benefits are of every day going to work and working with people that you trust and you love, and that um that that have your back. But also but also are daring to go to the beyond today and, and daring to be fired or daring to be create courageous is is such a really really great thing. And and you know if you're tired you're tired if you if you're a little bit reactive because your housemate didn't pay their rent that's fine as well if your team didn't win on the weekend that's cool but we're all here to um, create something of um, you know to, to create a story that may you know that may change one person that one person may change five that five people may change ten people so yeah that's what it was about and that's where it is now I think. ABC Commercial, Format Sales Chief Catherine McMillan spoke to Nico Franks about two titles the Australian public service broadcaster has recently exported elsewhere. 
environmentally themed entertainment show The Great Bee Challenge and prejudice busting format, you can't ask that. So Catherine, in terms of the past 12 months, 18 months, obviously there's been a pandemic going on. I'm wondering how that's impacted the, the world of formats and has it impacted the demand for formats and the demand for the kind of formats that people are looking for? Yes, well, we we really have been rushed off our feet during this uh, the COVID period. Surprising, really. We didn't really know how it was going to affect us, obviously. Um, but I've definitely noticed the trend um, of more demand for feel-good formats and uh, and that warm glow of positivity. Um, and uh, and definitely uh, viewers have been looking for uh, the, the sorts of formats where you have a takeaway, some, some, something you can really learn to enrich your lives, especially if your lives are at home uh, more and more. Um, so not pure entertainment, but uh, something that you can really uh, uh, manage to um, uh, to uh, to help your own life and um, and also a sense of community um, has been uh, has been really important it seems from uh, from the sort of demands that we've had from our, our our broadcast partners and being a public service broadcaster was that kind of content already on your slate or have you proactively gone out um, to look for more of it um, we I think we've just been in a really lucky position where we did have some formats on our slate that uh, that were like that. Um, uh, uh, particularly in in the Great Bee Challenge being one, and you can't ask that being being another. Um, so we we've been very fortunate to have those. I guess Fight for Planet A is another one that that we have that's that's in that vein. Um, there have been some some sort of demand for uh, formats that cover some global issues. Uh, so um so we we've been lucky. It was just sort of working out what our buyers really wanted and being able to to tap into those formats and match the uh, the networks with the right formats. And you mentioned the Great B Challenge and You Can't Ask That, which are two formats we're going to really look at in depth uh, in this session. But before we do that, just tell me a bit about the formats from kind of their origins from the Australian perspective. B Challenge, sort of the, the, the core of the idea came from within a, a bigger primetime series called Catalyst. And uh, we just commissioned uh, two one hours, two hours of this. And uh, it, it turned out to be really, really popular. And it was our managing director's fam- favorite show of the year. Uh, and so um, it just really had a wonderful message. And, uh, and therefore, we, we spotted it as being unique and wanted to take it to the world. And we thought it was one of those really strong eco formats, so to speak. And I hadn't seen many of those. Also taking a, a sort of a niche idea, rather like something like like Bake Off and uh, sort of taking it more out out to the world. So there aren't, aren't I thought there weren't that many people that uh, farmed bees, but it turns out through pitching the format, there are a lot of people who farm bees or are hobby farmers. And uh, through pitching the format, I've 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 learned a lot. Um, and you can't ask that. Well, we originally commissioned that for our iView, our digital service, and then just realised we had a real hit on our hands uh, when we made it. So obviously. Um, both of them are, are relatively uh, effective on the budget side, uh, smaller budgets. Um, but yes, we realised we ha- had a hit when we saw the footage of, of You Can't Ask That. And that was when we decided to put it in a primetime ABC One slot as well as on our IV service. 
And uh, it really served the purpose of attracting younger viewers to the network, which is what we wanted it to do. And uh, quite different uh, according to um, uh, viewership. Uh, some episodes were watched so much more on uh, on linear and some were watched so much more on uh, on the iView service. So it really varied. It's It's been really interesting. So the Great Bee Challenge, that's these groups of people challenged to um, harvest their own honey using uh, colonies of bees. Um, in terms of uh, the kind of structure of the format, how, how does it work in terms of the competition? Well, so we, we, we pick our families to begin with, or, uh, or, or it could just be a, a couple. It doesn't, they don't necessarily have to be kids in, in, involved in our version. Um, and then we get an expert to come in and set up the, uh, the apiary for them. And, uh, and they learn all about how to look after their, their bees by going to bee school. Um, and uh, and lots of wonderful and interesting, exciting things happened, like having to move uh, move the the, the um, apiary in the middle of the night. Um, and yeah, uh, and then they learned jeopardy in, in that episode. A, a bit of jeopardy indeed. And then they um, yeah they managed to learn how to harvest uh, the honey sort of further on down the line. And uh, and then they were able to taste the honey in in some community uh, sort of street parties. Um, and then they obviously had the competition aspect of having the honey feature on uh, on the menu at um, Guillaume's in the Opera House, which is a really uh, really um, unique restaurant and um, really exciting to also be be sort of winning through having the best tasting honey instead of the amount of honey that uh, that that you made and so um, it was really exciting to see who ended up winning the competition because uh, so, some of these bee farms were in beautiful rural locations and some were on the top of uh, high rises in the middle of town. And then you can't ask that so that's these misjudged marginalized Australians. Um, so there's episodes on autism, sex workers, uh, transgender men and women, and it sees them as anonymous questions from online submissions. Yes, yeah, exactly. So you get um, general members of the public can ask ask questions, whatever they want, really, of uh, of uh, these people from particular areas of, of society. And um, it really gets a, a very sort of frank answer. And uh, obviously, these are questions that most people probably wouldn't ask face to face. But there's something about being able to send in the questions, and you get uh, you get some really uh, shocking and surprising questions and things you would never have thought of necessarily. Um, but uh, it really makes um, I think it's making the world a better place in in that you you feel sympathy, you feel empathy towards these different groups of society and uh, one minute you're laughing and one minute you're crying um, but it's been interesting that it's it's won awards um, as a lifestyle program as well as a, a, a factual entertainment uh, program and we played it in a comedy slot so um, it it really can tap into lots of different audiences and also very cost effective absolutely no definitely which has been another trend uh, during COVID I think was uh, we had a lot of uh, lot of demand, and uh, in fact, ended up making a deck of our budget friendly formats, as I was calling them. And COVID safe as well. 
Yes, well, that's it. That's it as well. Yeah, we had to do some adapting for uh, for all of our formats, obviously, during that period. And so both those formats are tackling global issues that are you know, really coming to the fore in society, be it the environmental impacts um, in the Great Bee Challenge, and then lots of social issues in um, You Can't Ask That. What's the kind of strategy around, um, so addressing these issues, but, but kind of doing it in a positive way and without coming across as preachy? Yes, well, I guess that's always, that's always something that's hard to do. But I guess in, in You Can't Ask That, we're letting, we're letting the contributors speak for themselves. Um, so it's it, it's almost like you don't have in vision a a host. Uh, it's literally reading cards. So I would therefore hope we could never be uh, be uh, thought to be dictating any any responses. So it very much comes from the contributor, and I I guess the same from the Great Bee Challenge in that you're getting the reactions of the families that are that are involved in the in the show rather than uh, rather than us um, directing specifically any any response uh that 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 we would want which um which we wouldn't want to do anyway really we 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 want to let the people speak for themselves in both of those shows SBS Head of Unscripted John Godfrey, Northern Pictures Head of Factual Karina Holden, CJZ Managing Director and Co-Founder Nick Murray and Wild Bear Entertainment Executive Producer and Principal Bettina Dalton spoke with Don Groves about the lessons learned in navigating their shows through the pandemic. They also discussed the increasing appetite among audiences for factual and factual entertainment programmes dealing with challenging social issues plus why international co-productions will be more problematic as a result of Australian media reforms. Factual producers have welcomed the government's decision to raise the TV and streaming producer offset from 20% to 30%, but they are alarmed at the decision to double the minimum qualifying Australian spend or quite for the offsets from half a million dollars to a million dollars. They're also hot and bothered about removing the Gallipoli clause, which means that production costs incurred in shooting in other countries will no longer qualify for the producer offset. So, Nick, that would mean you couldn't produce in future shows like SBS's Go Back to Where You Came From, in which Aussies with differing opinions on the asylum seeker debate were taken to countries from which uh, the refugees embarked for Australia. And for shows that involve uh, shooting overseas, it would now be cheaper to hire overseas crews than Aussies. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a very, that Gallipoli thing, I, I've always expected that that would be reversed at some point because it's it's a ridiculous situation to say that, uh, that employing Australian crew in Australia uh, is, you know, results in a tax credit uh, and employing that taking that same crew overseas to shoot something from an Australian perspective that's an essentially Australian story doesn't get you the tax credit. And suddenly, you know, you'll just be hiring crews in the market that you're going to. It's a, it, it, that, that is an absurd outcome. And uh, I must say, I thought that government would would see sense on that, and and that we wouldn't be talking about this today. Well, so, so far uh, the government is is not uh, not responsive to that. John, I know you believe the offset changes in removing the Gallipoli clause uh, will mean that uh, shows with international content and indeed international co-productions will be more challenging. Uh, well, uh, yeah, no, absolutely, and I totally agree with what Nick has just said. But 
if any content that's shot overseas cannot be part of the uh, offset, then quite obviously it's going to become more expensive to do shows that shoot overseas. But Karina, um, you told me you're looking at ways to make bigger budgeted shows so they still qualify for the offset. Uh, can you give me some examples of how that might work? Well, I'd love to. Um, it's it's on paper, but again, it's like, you know, you, you're not just working from finance plans, you're working from creative. But I, what I'm finding is that with these changes in rules, it is actually leading the types of ideas that you can put forward because you suddenly realize that you're being led down a garden path where certain things aren't fundable anymore and so that it is actually going to start shaping the types of stories that that we're making um, in a way that it hasn't necessarily before um, and when I say bigger budget I guess that um, you know like it, it requires you therefore to to bring on more co-production partners to have other parts of your finance plan uh, coming from other places and yet at the same time suddenly we can't tell stories in any other place and so is an international audience so interested in our stories from our point of view in our place? Is that too parochial? Um, and therefore, you know, how there's a, probably a thin margin of, of programs that can satisfy that. Um, but it does it does make me feel like we're just going to get stuck in the same old uh, sort of um, um, hackneyed stories about Australia, therefore, uh, in order to bring those international co-producers to our stories here, um, rather than those nuanced stories where you can actually really expand out and, and tell stories that uh, potentially they don't expect about Australians. Tina, uh, you told me the changes haven't broadly impacted uh, Wild Bear uh, because of the diversity of your slate, but you are having to rethink some of the projects you're developing and how you're developing them. Yeah, and the Glibly Clause is an issue for our programs going forward that are appealing to the streaming audience. As you just said, it seems like we're being pulled in two different directions. You know, the expectation is that we make, tell stories that work universally, have universal themes, and that involves travelling. You know, it's still from the Australian perspective. For instance, the film we just completed on, you know, with Valerie Taylor, we, there was a great scene of, of, at the end of the film of her swimming with bull sharks in Fiji. You know, we could never shoot that in a tank, in a studio, you know, on the Gold Coast. There are certain factual storytelling that cannot be done in this country. Um, so, you know, I find that a real challenge. But we do have a, a diverse slate. But like, you know, Karina was saying, it has it has meant that we've had to remodel the way we do things, looking at instead of make, making a three-parter, making a six-parter. And, you know, all of this is like, you know, reimagining how we are putting these shows together. And it takes time to get those those new versions into the marketplace and raise the money. So there's going to be this lag effect uh, because of the changes where we're going to have to reimagine our slates to take to the marketplace because of these changes. Playing with Sharks, which looks at the uh, underwater filming pioneer Valerie Taylor, uh, that was acquired by uh, Disney, by National Geographic Films after its uh, Sundance premiere. And that means it goes out on uh, Disney+. Plus after the Australian theatrical release via Madman Entertainment. So um, that's a terrific platform for the documentary. It is. And, you know, trying to hold on to those world rights is not easy. Um, so we're having to come up with a model whereby we can fund the film. Thankfully, we've got Screen Australia, Create New South Wales, Madman put up a distribution advance and Dog Wolf, our sales agents, put up a significant investment and um, advance as well, which enabled us to be able to sell to a streamer with world rights, but it also meant that we had to make the film in a way that it would resonate 
internationally. It had to feel like an international film. And that is the challenge with the Gallipoli Clause. You know, as Karina said, if it feels parochial, we're going to be excluded from some of those markets. But I think it goes even beyond that because, you know, with something, if you're going to a particularly dangerous place, so, uh, you know, any any documentary that's filming in you know, Afghanistan or, or some of those uh, Middle Eastern uh, and, and tro- trouble spots around the world, I guess, you really want to take local crew. You want to take people that you can depend on. I would be very concerned if when we were doing Go Back to Where You Came From, we went to Iraq and we went to Afghanistan and, you know, we, we took our own crew there. So we knew who we were travelling with and there were very, very serious security concerns on, the, on that project. Uh, I would not want to be picking up a random film crew in Iraq and then having our people, you know, rely on them when we have no idea what their background is. It's a, you know, I think there are some shows that that literally will not be able to be made because because you can't be sure of the security of the rest of the people you're working with. And Nick, uh, doubling Quape will mean that shows like Bondi Rescue, uh, the longest running primetime show on uh, Network 10, will no longer qualify for the post-digital and visual effects offset, the PDV. Yeah. So after 16 seasons, its future is in doubt? Uh, yeah, I th- I'm, I'm really concerned about that it's a that decision is is in a way even more perverse than the than the Gallipoli provision because the Gallipoli provision apparently there were some people trying to rot it I don't know why that wasn't able to be stopped but but with the with the PDV offset threshold being doubled from 500,000 to a million there are a number of projects which long-running factual series observational documentary series which uh which need the PDV to top up their budgets and those shows I'm told the part of the reason is they want the government wants the government wants the industry to focus on shows that will sell overseas now the weird thing is that change uh and they want us to focus on you know higher budget programs the problem is that particular change is going to affect at least three projects that i know of that actually do sell quite well around the world uh, bono rescue being one of them and because once they've gone over 65 hour, uh, hours, they can't get the offset anymore. So you, you've got to get the PDV in order to top up the budget a little bit. The problem with that is, it, you know, for Bondo Rescue, it's about $180,000 a series. So it's not a lot of money. But at the same time, they're allowing neighbours to get the offset. And that, that's $12.5 million a year. So neighbours and home and away are going to account for $25 million a year of extra offset payments. And they're pulling the offset away from a few series that get the PDV on a factual show. So that's going to save them about a million dollars, maybe between a million and two million a year. So they're in a net worse position of $23 million worse off. And they're going to affect shows that are currently the shows that sell overseas, blue light shows and, you know, procedural obdoc shows sell all over the world. And uh, and that's going to be affected by this decision. John, at the height of the pandemic, there was a view that uh, people wanted escapism or light entertainment, uh, which in your case was often restricted to studio-based shows like CJZ's uh, Life Drawing Live and the Eurovision Big Night In. But as the pandemic continued, uh, you discovered there was a growing appetite for factual shows that look at challenging uh, social issues like Addicted Australia. And just recently, you screened Northern Pictures See What You Made Me Do. So See What You Made Me Do has uh, Jess Hill, the investigative journalist, investigating domestic abuse at a time when, on average, every week in Australia, one woman is killed by her current or former partner. Uh, it broke all records for a factual commission on SBS On Demand, John. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's astounding. And congratulations to Karina uh, and Northern Pictures and the, and the crew. It was really interesting because you're right, as the, uh, the pandemic sort of 
sort of uh, went on longer and longer. Right at the beginning, we were really worried about a lot of the a lot of the shows that we commissioned because we commissioned around sort of challenging social issues around our charter. And uh, with the Ditches Australia and See What You Baby Do, these were really really challenging subject matter and really actually sort of actually quite traumatic subject matter with See What You Made Me Do. But uh, as you said, Don, it has uh, broken all records, I think, for sort of commission factual on, on demand. I think it's now 2 million chapter views and counting. Um, and uh, just the coverage. Look, it helped that, unfortunately, domestic violence was in the news, as you as you, uh, as you said. Uh, actually, because of the pandemic, domestic violence rates went up astronomically. And obviously, all the... Uh, the headlines in Canberra about uh, inappropriate sexual behaviour. So it was in the ether, but uh, uh, it is really gratifying to see um, a series about domestic violence get that much attention and create that much national discussion. It's uh, based on a book by Jess Hill. So, Karina, I guess you read the book and thought, yes, I can see this as a as a really compelling uh, documentary on a, on a hot-button issue? Actually, no. Um, we had done 12 months of development on um, domestic abuse uh, for SBS, knowing that it was a topic that uh, we needed to find an, a way into. And Jess's book was only uh, published about halfway through that process and I had known of her and had conversations with her and suddenly it just, every way that we looked at the subject it suddenly felt like if we worked with Jess's scaffolding and her and the way that she presented it just it just started to fall into place that she was the natural storyteller and I think that she's a new face she's a fresh face she's optimistic she comes with compassion Um, she's very much meeting people in a way that uh, feels quite unique and and natural Um, and so you know just finding a grammar for her to take that book into the visual world was was really um, you know the journey that we had to go on with her and 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 hopefully I think that that potentially is part of the success of, of the show in that it in some ways true crime elements are so compelling to audiences but doing it in a way that it's not just gratuitous it's actually maybe serving a true crime audience but also serving a a highly intelligent kind of um you know thesis driven uh, way of looking at documentary storytelling as well are you looking at working with Jess again and or doing more shows in that kind of um, genre? Yeah, I think, look, I think it would be, we had such an amazing experience. Uh, she was a, a, a producer consulting on the show as well and we just formed a really great relationship working together and um, we're all passionate about the same things and so um, we would love to keep on working with her. I think it's a, a, a nice uh, face and way of telling stories for SBS as well. John Godfrey, Karina Holden, Nick Murray and Bettina Dalton speaking with Don Groves as part of C21's Content Australia On Demand. You can catch plenty more from the virtual event by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station where you'll find full versions of all the discussions we've aired this week. That's all for this episode. There'll be more on C21 FM from Monday and from the podcast next Friday. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.